Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 145. As you can tell, it is a long psalm, and so uh, I will not spend the same amount of time on each verse. I will mainly uh, comment on the ones that need uh, commenting on. But what you need to know about Psalm 145 is it is a praise psalm that is an acrostic, okay? Does everybody know what an acrostic is? You may or may not. An acrostic is where you take a word or even take the entire alphabet and you write it out vertically, and then next to each letter, you write something that starts with that letter. Now, that might sound kind of confusing, so I've created some acrostics for you based on some staff members' names here at Parkway that I'd like to share, just to prime the pump, if you will. So, for example, let's put up one for our staff member, Jared. You see, this is an acrostic. It spells Jared as you go down vertically. J stands for just okay. A for A-plus looks. R for rarely inspiring, (laughs) E for electrically blonde, and D for dyslexic, or as he calls it, lestistic, okay? So that's Jared. So his name is written, so you know it's about Jared, and all these things are attributes of Jared. Or I'll give you one for my friend Jeff, okay? We have one here for Jeff. (laughs) G, getting older, okay? E, extrovert, not, okay? Because he is a big introvert, he is not an extrovert. O, one-fourth Japanese. Maybe you didn't know that about Jeff. He's one-fourth Japanese. F, faithful. And then my favorite one, F, forgot how to spell Jeff with a J. Okay? And then I'll give you one more that I found online that I really liked for 2020. It is happy is the acrostic. H, hardly sleeping. A, anxious about everything. P, pretending I'm fine. P, dead inside. Why can't write an acrostic poem? Okay? So there's another one for you. This is an acrostic, okay? So what this text is going to do is the entire poem in Hebrew is actually an acrostic, but instead of spelling out a word, it's the Hebrew alphabet, okay? So it goes from all the way from A to Z, or in Hebrew from Aleph to Tav, and next to each letter begins the sentence with that letter, okay? So that's one of the reasons that it's so long. That's what's going on in this text. If I were to do something like this for Parkway, I'd say A, awesome people, B, Bible-believing, whatever it is, and I would work through the alphabet. Well, that's what the psalmist is doing in this psalm as he praises God. Now, why does he do that? When they use an acrostic poem in the psalms, and this isn't the only one, the idea is this, that everything from A to Z, from Aleph to Tav, praises God. And what you'll especially see and what I'll spend a special amount of time on in the sermon is God's kindness and mercy and his providential care of creation. You will see that God provides for everything, including the animals. You'll see how kind he is, how merciful he is. We'll see that throughout this psalm. So let's pray, and then we will jump in. Almighty God, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you'd be with us. We thank you for your word, that your word is perfect and without error. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that our hearts might be changed. I confess that me, and this is also probably the case for many people in here, don't really believe how much you love us because we have a tendency to forget who we are in Christ and we have a tendency to forget all the good things you've given us. So would you help us? We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Let's start with the title through verse three. First of all, the title, a song of praise. That's helpful. That lets us know what type of psalm it is of David. I will extol you. Extol means to praise greatly, by the way. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Now let's start with verse one here when he says, I will extol you, I want you to see this in particular, my God and King. 
okay? If you've got your Bible, underline the word king. Why is that significant in David's praise of God? Here's the reason. Because David is the king of Israel. David is the most powerful person in his community, and yet he says, I'm not the ultimate king. I'm a king in a lowercase k sense, but there is one who is a sovereign above me. I I submit, even though I'm the king, I submit to a higher king. Part of our problems in life generally becomes from us not realizing that God is in control because he's king. Why do we have to obey God? Because he's creator and we're created. Why do we have to follow God? Because he keeps us existing. He is the sovereign, he is the king, and this has an extra punch to it when you recognize that it is David who himself is a king who's saying, it's not me. I'm not the ultimate authority. I can tell men where to go, I can can move nations, I can send armies, but God is the king. New Testament scholar Patrick Shiner at Western Seminary says this, God is king. Perhaps we're prone to think of God as friend or father or some impersonal force or mystical presence. However, kingship is the root metaphor for the Bible's description of God. The kingdom is not simply social ethics or heaven or the church or God's sovereignty. The kingdom is much larger and at the center of his kingdom stands a wooden cross covered in blood. He's not saying that God is not father And he's not saying that God is not friend. What he's saying is that we have overlooked a huge metaphor that the Bible uses for God, which is kingship. That we submit to him because he is in charge. Because if God is a king, when we sin, we don't just sin, we commit treason. That's what sin is when your God is king. Now look at verses one and two. I want you to see this. I will extol you, my God and king, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. There's this idea that you sometimes hear from Old Testament scholars that says that there's not a conception in the Old Testament of life after death. What they'll say is that's a New Testament idea. In the New Testament you get final judgment and you get resurrection and you get the afterlife, but that is completely ridiculous. Not only in the Old Testament are there references to bodily resurrection, like in Isaiah and Daniel, but you have these little hints sprinkled throughout. David just doesn't think, I'm gonna praise God and then I'm gonna die and that's the end of it. That's why he says twice, forever and ever, because that is why we were created. The sole purpose you exist is the worship of God. That's the sole reason you exist. That's the sole reason that God brought you into being is to worship God. Let me say it this way. If you're a really good golfer, you have the most joy when you're playing golf well. When you're hitting, you know, your drives excellently and you're doing chip-ins and you're making your 100-foot putts, when you're doing that, the world is as it should be and you experience joy. If you're a good musician, you are the happiest when you are playing or composing music well, when everything is flowing together. When you're a doctor, you are the happiest when a patient comes in that other doctors haven't been able to help and you're able to give them some type of diagnosis and remedy that helps them and they say, doctor, thank you, you're the first one that's helped alleviate these symptoms. A good golfer feels most joy when he's golfing well. A musician feels joy when they're playing music well. A doctor uh, feels joy when he's healing well. Here is what humans were designed to do. We were designed to worship God. Humans are the happiest when we are worshiping God. That is our highest joy. And what this text is saying, there's this hope here that I'll praise God not only each day now, but forever and ever for all eternity. Now here's even a difference. Maybe there are times in worships where, worship where you felt this love of God, you felt close to God. But there are a lot of times when you worship when you don't. That's because we live in a broken and fallen world and the world is not as it should be. But one day, after we die, we will be resurrected and we will worship God forever and ever and we will never get tired of it and we will never get bored of it and it will only be pure joy because God is an infinite being. 
no matter how much we know him, no matter how much we love him, no matter how much we worship him, for all eternity, it just gets better and better and better and better. And David praises God for that. Look at verse three. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. I went on a mission trip one time to the Middle East, which, uh, you know, you got to be careful. The Middle East is a a bit of a shady place. And uh, our little mission team got there, and then two guys in our team got really sick. They got some sort of, we thought it was a stomach bug. So we stayed away from these two guys and kind of quarantined them, and they were not doing well, and they were throwing up some sort of stomach issue. After a few days, though, we realized that nobody else caught it. And so we thought, I bet they ate something. I bet they ate something weird. So we asked them, did you guys eat anything else that the rest of us didn't eat. And they're like, yeah, you know what we did actually. We're like, well, what did you eat? They said, well, we went into a convenience store and we got some chocolate. And I thought, was it like, 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 a, like a Baghdad Butterfinger, some sort of weird candy that you're eating in the Middle East? They're like, no, it was like Toblerone chocolate. We have it in the US. And I'm like, I don't think eating chocolate is what gave you a stomach issue. So a few days go by and they're telling a story and they're talking about how when we were first touring around one of the cities there, they saw this river and decided that they were thirsty so they would drink out of the river. And I thought, you don't drink the water in Mexico. You definitely don't drink it in the Middle East. Maybe that's your issue. They just had no idea. They were just completely blind to it. Now, let me tell you why that's significant for verse three. We think that the reason that we commit sins are all these other things. Let me tell you why we ultimately commit sin. Because we don't believe that God is great. That's what it comes down to. When you don't think that God is great, when you don't think that his greatness is unsearchable, you will try to find something else that is great. You're made to worship, so if you don't worship God, your heart will try to exalt something. So when God's not great, money has to be great, or your relationship has to be great, or your self-perception has to be great, and you, whatever it might be. And so the solution we're blind to it. We don't realize that's the issue, just like my friends didn't realize drinking from the river was the issue. That is the issue. The way that you fight idolatry, the way that you fight sin is by remembering that God is great and his greatness is unsearchable. No matter how highly you think of God, you're not thinking of him highly enough. Let me say it stronger. You're never completely accurately thinking of God. You can't. You're a creature. God is an infinite being. To quote Augustine, if you think you're thinking of God, you're not thinking of him. You cannot comprehend God. You can know truths about God, but God is incomprehensible. He's infinite. He's Trinity. He's omnipresent. God is wholly other than us. And so part of the reason that we fall into sin, we fall into idolatry, other than the fact that we're born broken and sinful, is that we think those things are great. We think they will bring us joy, and we miss what David is saying, is that it is God who is great, and his greatness is unsearchable. And when you miss this, you become the late Christopher Hitchens, who wrote the, uh, who's an atheist who wrote the book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. You see how far down that rabbit trail goes when you lose a picture of the greatness of God. Verses four through seven. Okay, so we've just seen David praising God and telling us to praise God for who God is. Now we're gonna see some praising God for what he's done. Verses four through seven. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. What the text is saying here is that we can trust God in the future because he's been faithful in the past. Let me give you a little illustration. I have a three-year-old daughter named Isla who's adorable, but she's also three and she's a very spunky three. 
okay? So we have a neighbor that lives a few houses down from us and he wears an eye patch, okay? He, he had some sort of eye injury at some point. He wears an eye patch and he's always outside either on his porch or on his driveway, okay? So one day, Isla and I are going for a walk. I love going for walks with my little girl. She goes for a walk with dad. So we're going for a walk and she walks past that guy and yells out, why he only had one eye? And I'm like, shh. And so we're moving away and I'm like, hey, honey. So I, I, after we passed by that guy's house, I knelt down and I said, hey, sweetie, you're right. He does have one eye. He probably injured his eye. He might only have one eye, but we don't need to scream. Why does he have one eye when we walk past his house? Because that might hurt his feelings. Do you understand? I understand. Few days go by, we go for another walk. Walk by the house. Daddy, daddy. Why he only have one eye? And I'm like, Eilish, hey, how you doing? Shh, we talked about it. So I kneel down and have the same conversation. Listen, we're not gonna talk about it, you're right. You can talk to daddy about it, but we're not gonna yell that because that could hurt his feelings. You understand? I understand. A few days go by. We go on another walk and she had improved a little bit. We walk by and she goes, daddy, we're not supposed to talk about how he only has one eye. <laughs> and then she said, why is he a pirate? She said this. So now I walk a different street because the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. That's what this text is saying about God. The best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. How do you know that God will be faithful? How do you know that God will deliver? How, why should you praise God? And because he's delivered in the past because he's been faithful in the past. You see, when I say that future behavior is the best indicator of past behavior, that's not always the case because humans change. But God is unchanging. So if God has been faithful in the past, he, by logical necessity, must be faithful in the future as well. When this text talks about things like your majesty and your wondrous works and your mighty acts, those are references in the Old Testament to when God delivers Israel out of Egypt. David's saying, don't only just praise God because of who he is, praise God for what he has done. How do you know that God will be faithful because he's been faithful in the past and he is unchanging? Verse four says something we need to comment on. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Few things that we can take from this. First, that God's kingdom will go forward. The gospel message will go forward. If you're ever thinking, oh my gosh, if we don't reach the next generation, Christianity's over. That will never happen. Jesus is clear that the gates of Hades will never overcome his church. They never have and they never will. So there's this hope of the gospel in this passage. But there's also some instruction for us as parents, if you're a parent, that you are commanded to teach your children about the mighty acts of God. Not only do we see that in the Old Testament, we also see it elsewhere in the Psalms. Psalm 78, three through four. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So as a parent, should you be teaching your kid the rules that God gives us in the Bible? Yes and amen to that. You should be teaching your kids rules. You should be teaching them morality. You should be teaching all of that. In fact, you have a right as a parent to add commands to your kids. That audiophora sermon that I did about the freedom you have in Christ is only once you're outside of your parents' house, okay? But you don't just teach your kids the rules. You also declare to them the mighty acts of God. You make God look beautiful to your kids because God is beautiful. If your kids love the color blue, you let them know God made blue. If your kids love going to the park, you let them know God ordained that we would go to the park. 
You see, if you just give your kids rules, and yes, give them rules, but if you just give them rules, God becomes this policeman in the sky watching over them, waiting for them to mess up. You have to let them know that God is great. One of the things that we do with our kids is when we pray with them, we'll often have them thank God for something fun they got to do. God, thank you for letting us go swimming today, whatever it might be, because everything happens by God's sovereign decree. But there's also something else we need to keep in mind here when the gospel is going to one generation. It's not just about us and our kids. It's also the idea of evangelism and discipleship, okay? Between the Old and the New Testament, some people have too much discontinuity. We call those people dispensational. Some people have too much continuity. We call those people covenantal. Whereas the Bible primarily has a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is some new wine that doesn't fit into old wineskins, as Jesus would say. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the temple is a building. In the New Testament, the temple is who? Jesus. In the Old Testament, priests are these guys that do this stuff at the temple. In the New Testament, we're the priests. Okay? All these things change between the, new and the, between the Old and the New Testament. And one of those things is the definition of the family of faith. The family of faith. In the Old Testament, if you were just born an Israelite, you were in a generic covenant with God regardless. That's why you could circumcise your kids. They were considered to be God's covenant people whether they had faith or not. One of the things that changes in that your, your kids were ethnic. It was ethnic. It was biological. That was your primary family. One of the shifts that happens in the New Testament is you're given a new definition of the family of faith. God's family is now those who have faith in Christ. It's one of the reasons we don't do infant baptism here at Parkway. It confuses the covenants. Whereas Jesus will come and say things, the son of a Jew is a Jew. The son of a Christian is not a Christian necessarily. Whereas Jesus will come and say things like, I've come to divide you from your physical family. Fathers against sons, mothers against daughters, mothers against mother, you know, mothers-in-law, etc. When they come to Jesus and they say, your mother and your brothers are here, he says, no, those aren't my mother and my brothers, not the physical family. Who are my mother and brothers? Those who do the will of God. So this passage, yes, disciple your kids, you're commanded to do so, but it goes beyond that. It goes to evangelism, it goes to discipleship, it goes to discipling the next generation, whether they're related to you or not. Verse five, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Quick comment here. Meditation is one of those spiritual disciplines that we don't do because it feels weird. We're fine with Bible reading, we're fine with prayer, we're fine with evangelism, but when it comes to meditation, we don't know what to do with that because when we think meditation, we think Eastern meditation, right? We think Hinduism, we think Buddhism where your legs are crossed and you're levitating and you're saying Om or whatever it is, right? Where you're trying to lose the self into the all and become one with the universe, where Atman is becoming Brahman in, in Hinduism, that's not at all what the Bible means by meditation, okay? Whereas in Eastern meditation, you try to become one with the universe and lose the distinction between creator and creation. What you do in Christian meditation is not to, to empty your mind, but rather to fill it with true biblical thoughts. Christian meditation is where you take time to think about the truths expressed to us in scripture. So I'll give you a little, a little take home, if you will. Every day this next week, find five minutes. Just five minutes where you can get alone and where somebody won't bug you. You can set your timer for five minutes on your phone and for five minutes, just think about true things related to God and your relationship to him. For five minutes, just think, I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm forgiven. I can't lose my salvation. Christ loves me. God doesn't regret saving me. He doesn't just love me, he likes me. 
I'm pure, I'm clean, I'm spotless in Christ. You'll find it's really hard to do that for five minutes because what you'll start doing is thinking condemning thoughts. You'll start thinking distracting thoughts. But I guarantee you, if you start renewing your mind, because that's the way you change your heart, by the way, according to the Bible, quote, through the renewing of the mind, it will transform your life. That's why we are to meditate on God's greatness. We're to meditate on his mighty acts. Verses eight through nine, I'm gonna spend a lot of time here. I love verses eight through nine. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I won't go into that verse as much because Jared talked a lot about it in a recent sermon. This is the most common way that God is described in the Old Testament. It's the most common way that God describes himself. When Moses says, God, I want to see you. God says, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, you, you would die and I'm also invisible. But here's what I'll do. I'll walk by you and I will proclaim my name. And as God walks by, this is, the, this is the thing that he proclaims, that he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you see God that way? Do you see God as one who enjoys you, doesn't just tolerate you? one who doesn't regret saving you, one who's slow to anger or one who quickly gets angry. But Jared talked about that. So I wanna spend a bunch of time on verse nine. Look at this one. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Later on in the Psalm, it'll talk about how everything looks to them for their food, that he provides us all the things that we desire that are righteous desires. So I wanna spend some time unpacking this because I think that one of the reasons we don't understand the overwhelming love of God is because we don't see how gracious he is in day-to-day life. We see that he's gracious in saving us through Christ but we don't realize that his mercy is over all that he has made. His kindness is everywhere. God didn't have to make food taste good. You could have eaten a flavorless paste that would have sustained your body. The fact that God invented flavor is his mercy to you. It's just because he loves you. So let me give you a hundred examples of this. First, when you get to cuddle a baby, when the baby just has on a diaper and you get to feel that little baby skin, that is because God's kindness is over all that he has made. God didn't have to make babies cute. He didn't have to make them squishy with that little dolphin waterproof skin, but he does because he's kind and he's merciful because he loves you. When you hold your baby, you should think, God is good. He didn't have to do it this way. This wasn't necessary for this baby to be cute for it to survive. God is kind. How about this one? Watching your kids laugh and play in the sprinklers. That is an evidence of God's mercy to you. That didn't just happen. God has ordained everything in your life. And when you get to see your kids laugh and play in the sprinklers, that is a a tangible example of God loving you. God didn't have to make us where we laugh. Think about how weird laughter is. Something's fun or funny, so our face tightens up and we show our teeth and we start shaking. That is something God invented because his kindness is over all that he has made. Or how about this one? The sound that snow makes when you walk on it that crunching sound that snow makes when you walk on it. God didn't have to make you where you could hear sounds. God didn't have to make music. He didn't have to let your ear pick up on all these different things. Snow, by the way, Texans, is this magical stuff that falls from the sky once every 10 years, and it makes a great sound when you step on it. Being intimate with your spouse is a gift from God. God could have found a way to populate the uh, the human race without having something that is fun and exciting and passionate, but it's an evidence of God's love for you. Eating a medium rare filet mignon. All, amen. This is Texas uh, barbecue. Uh, That tenderness, that flavor, that saltiness, all of that was invented by God. You realize steaks are not eternal like God. Everything that he has made, he invented. And so that is part of God's love for you. We don't even think about it. We just eat a steak and think, ah, it's a good steak. That is God saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. 
eating a peach so juicy that it runs down your chin. I don't mean one of these gross Walmart peaches. I mean like a Georgia peach or a peach from Parker County, Texas, where you take one bite and then your clothes are dripping just with water. God had to invent peach flavor and it's his gift to you. Why? Because he is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Having an incredible glass of wine, the aromas, the flavor, even that relaxing feeling of alcohol is a gift from God. The Bible says that God made wine to make men's hearts glad. This is God's gift to you. He had ordained that that life was going to be difficult post-fall. And so he has given us these gracious gifts. Skiing down a mountain, if you've ever gotten the chance to do that, that is a gift from God. Sleeping in on a day when it's lightly raining. You know that one? Where you wake up in the morning and you don't have somewhere where you have to be. You don't have to go to work. You wake up, you hear the, the, the rain lightly hitting your roof and you just put your hands under that cold pillow and go back to sleep. That's God's mercy to you. God invented sleep. Why? Because we would have worked ourselves to death had he not. He's kind and his mercy is over all that he's made. How about this one? Laughing so hard that your abs hurt. You know this one? Someone says something so funny that you fall down on all fours and there are tears going down your face and you're seeing stars and you can't breathe and your abs hurt. That is God's gift to you. To quote John Calvin, nowhere in scripture are we forbidden to laugh. Getting married is God's gift to you because his kindness is over all that he has made. My wedding day was hands down, best day of my life. Marriage is God's gift. Marriage is God's idea. Holding your baby for the first time, not just a baby, but when you first get to see your baby and you hold your baby and you think this baby is mine, that is God's gift to you because he is kind and he loves you and he's merciful. You see, if we don't see these things, If we just go throughout our lives, we're not gonna get the love letters that God has put throughout his creation for the benefit of humanity. Having someone tell you they love you. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's your kid, maybe it's a friend. When someone looks you in the eyes and says, I love you, I love you. That is God's gift to you. Verse 10, just kidding, I've got a thousand more. The smell after it rains in the summertime. It's June, it rains for like an hour, you step outside, God didn't have to give you a sense of smell. God didn't have to create things like that. That is for your joy because God is kind and he's merciful. How about this? Every time when you were a kid and you got to get ice cream from the ice cream truck, God is the one who invents sugar. God is the one who invents citrus. I get that today the ice cream truck's really terrifying. They're all like torn up and they've got like skull and crossbones on the side. But when I was a kid, they were run by people who weren't felons and it was magical, okay? It was magical. You could get a a bunny popsicle that still looked like a bunny. How about this? Every Christmas morning, when you've walked down the stairs or you've walked down the hall and you see the lights and you see the gifts, that's God's mercy to you. God didn't have to give any of this to you. You want to know what God owes us? Hell, the end. Everything other than hell is a gift. Hell's the only thing we've merited. It's the only thing we've earned. Everything else is because God is kind and his mercy is over all that he has made. Going for a walk in the fall where the leaves are changing, it's cool enough to wear a jacket but not so cold where you're feeling freezing. How about this one, honeysuckles? Whenever you're going for a walk and you see honeysuckles growing, you're in the woods, whatever it is, God created this flower that you can pull this little end out and you can taste the nectar or give some to your kids. God didn't have to do that. You can't do that with every flower. That is God's grace to humanity. And we don't even see it. We think, oh, honeysuckles. We don't think everything was designed by God. His mercy is over all he's made. As you look around, all of creation screams, God is good. God is good watching the fog in the mountains, if you've ever gotten to do that, it's serene. 
a pink and purple sunset. Every sunset is God like a painter showing off his power and we miss it. We don't even pay attention to it. Every sunset that there's ever been, God has ordained, God orchestrates to bring out those blues and those purples and those pink and those, those oranges. Going out for a day on the lake, if you've ever gotten to do that, where you get to water ski or swim or hang out on the boat and eat hot dogs, whatever it is, that's because God's mercy is over all that he has made. Here's one, bacon. God didn't forbid the Jews in the Old Testament from eating bacon because bacon's bad. It's because God was trying to have Israel look different than the other nations, but bacon is part of God's mercy to humanity. You take this gross-looking animal that oinks, and you eat some of it, and you're like, why are there so many flavors? Why is it so delicious? There are all these fancy arguments for the existence of God, right? The ontological argument, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument. Well, here's one that I would give an atheist, bacon, okay? I call it the bakological argument, and it is a great example of the sovereignty and mercy of God. Breathing in helium and talking in a funny voice, if you've ever done that, with a balloon where you breathe in the helium and you start talking in a high voice and then you start laughing in a high voice because it's hilarious, God has ordained that for you before you were born because he's kind, because he's merciful. Playing catch in the backyard with dad where you're throwing the baseball. How about this one? Fireflies. Fireflies. Fireflies are this, this, this insignificant bug that does a chemical reaction to create light to attract a, a mate. But for humans, we get to just sit there and see where, if, you, if you look in the woods in the summer. We have some of these here in McKinney, but you especially see this in the deep south. You'll see just the woods light up with fireflies. Why? Because God's kindness is over all that he has made. He didn't have to have fireflies do that. They could have found their spouse just like how every other bug does, right? But instead, it's a demonstration of his kindness and his mercy. Sitting in a hot tub when it's snowing outside, when your body is warm and the snow is coming down on your head and your face is cold. Taking a nap on the couch on Sunday afternoon. See, I don't get to do this one because Sundays are my Mondays. But God loves you because you get to take a nap <laughs> on the couch Sunday afternoon because his mercy is over all that he's made. And I'll give you one more. If you've ever gone to the beach and you step up by the water and the water goes over your feet and then it goes back out into the ocean and it sucks the sand out from under your feet so you sink a little bit. All of these are the mercy and kindness of God. And the reason that we don't see that God is so kind and merciful is because we think these things are just happenstance. We don't realize God's sovereignty and his creation. Or have you never read in 1 Timothy 6.17, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Obviously not sinful things. He hasn't provided us with adultery and meth to enjoy. But he's provided us with all things that are not sinful for our enjoyment because God is good and his kindness is over all that he's made. Now, I spent a long time on that because that's gonna be a theme that's gonna come up several more times in this passage. So I figured I would just knock it out all at once. We're gonna see this as it goes. If you will see God's love for you and what he has made, you will start to see a bigger picture of a kind God than maybe you have of the God disappointed with you all the time, though you're perfect in Christ. Though you're perfect in Christ. Verses 10 through 13a. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. If you wanna go through and underline how many times the, the word kingdom occurs in that, please do so. Verses 10 through 13, I wanna show you a few things here. First of all, the focus of these few verses is the idea of God being king, which we've already seen. But you actually see it here in the acrostic. So I said that this whole psalm is Aleph through Tav, A through Z in Hebrew, 
And when it comes to these verses, I wanna show you that something that's unique. The way that you spell king in Hebrew is with three Hebrew letters, okay? The Hebrew word for king is melech. It's spelled with a maim, a lamed, and a kaf, okay? So it's, in Hebrew, you don't have vowels. You just have to say the words with vowels we mark vowels with pointings, but Hebrew is a consonantal language, okay? You just spell words with consonants. So the, the Hebrew word king, that might've been confusing, so clear your mind, let me say it again. The Hebrew word king, melech, includes three letters, M, L, and K. You can remember that because Martin Luther King, okay? So M, L, K. So those are the three letters that occur in these verses. As it's focusing on kingship, it uses the three letters, the M, the L, and the K in Hebrew, which are the words needed to spell king to talk about God's kingship. And if you don't, don't know Hebrew, that's okay. You probably haven't missed the fact that it mentions kingdom, malkut in Hebrew, four times and dominion once. The focus here is on praising God because he is the king and because of his kingdom. Let me set it up this way. Before creation, before anything exists, there's just God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus did not come into existence. The, the, the eternal son of God did not come into existence. The spirit didn't come into existence. They are co-equal, co-eternal with the father. All that there exists for all eternity is just father, son, and spirit, our Trinitarian God, okay? Then God creates. God is creator. Everything else cre is creation. Then God creates. And when he creates, he reigns over his creation as king. He's the one that made it. He's the one that's spoken into being. He is the king. And under his kingdom, everything goes well. Look in Genesis 1 and 2. The animals aren't all eating each other. There's not COVID-19 and riots or something like this. In Genesis 1 and 2, things are great because God is a good king, so things function well under his kingdom. He takes mankind to be his royal gardeners. He says, mankind, Adam and Eve, what I want you to do is to spread my fame throughout the world. Subdue the world for my glory, be fruitful and multiply, be good representatives of my kingdom. But what does mankind do? Mankind says, no, I don't want God to be king, I want to be king. That's the temptation to Eve when the serpent says, when you eat of this, you will be like God. We can't actually be like God. It's not like we become some sort of eternal being or something like that. The way that mankind tries to be like God is by trying to make the decisions, by trying to be the master, by trying to be the king. So everything's good and then mankind says, I don't want you to be king, I wanna be king. And when that happens, because mankind is not a good king like God, everything becomes broken in the world. The, thor the ground bears thorns and thistles, pain is added to childbirth, etc. If you've ever wondered if God is so good, why are there so many bad things in the world? And the answer is because mankind rejected God. And this is the results of what you get when you walk away from the source of all good and all joy and all life. But because God is merciful, he comes down as a man, the second person of the Trinity, comes down to get us back to that, to reestablish his kingdom. That's what Jesus is doing in his ministry. He's making all the sad things that came into the world because of sin untrue. He's casting out demons because there shouldn't be demons in God's kingdom. He's casting out sickness because there shouldn't be sickness in God's kingdom. He's teaching true doctrine because there shouldn't be false doctrine in God's kingdom. And he dies for the sins of humanity and is raised from the dead to where he's given ever, all authority on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all authority. And he is coming back again, the return of the king. You can remember that from the J.R.R. Tolkien book, right? He is the king and he is coming back. The kingdom has begun, but it has not been consummated. One day he will return and it will only be joy. It will only be rejoicing. He will undo all the effects of sin, which he's already started undoing in his life, death, and resurrection. We praise God because he's king. Verses 13b through 16. 
The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and rises up all who are bowed down, raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Now, if you're looking in your Bible, there are parentheses around the second part of verse 13. Let me tell you why that is. There's some debate on whether or not this is original to the original manuscripts, okay? If you, by the way, if this topic freaks you out, that we actually have a bunch of manuscripts and we have to use a science to figure out which ones are actually God's word, please listen to Jeff's lecture on textual criticism. It's available on the website. It'll be very, very helpful. Let me tell you why there's some brackets around the second part of verse 13 if you're using an ESV. I said that this was a poem that works A through Z in Hebrew. They're missing, in our oldest Hebrew manuscripts, they're missing the N, what's called the noon. They're missing. So it's like saying J, K, L, M, O-P, and it just skips the N, okay? So the question is, did the original manuscripts skip the N? Is that how God intended it? Or is the N supposed to be there? Because we do have the N, the noon there, in other manuscripts. We have them in one manuscript in Hebrew from the Middle Ages, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, a version in Syriac and in Cave 11 at Qumran. We found one as a part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the question is, it was, was the end. Did, as this came hot off the pen of David or whoever wrote it, right? It's attributed to David. As it comes hot off the pen of David, did he skip the end by God's providential design? And so later manuscripts added that in because a copyist is like, well, surely it's got to have the end. Or did it originally have the end and somehow that got lost? That's my view. I, I don't see a possible world in which, you know, you write this poem to God from A to Z and nobody goes, hey man, you forgot a letter. You got to proofread your stuff. You know, you got to proofread your stuff. So I'm going to treat it as original. Again, we don't have enough time to handle all the textual criticism stuff today. Listen to Jeff's lecture on that. Email us if you still have questions. God's word is what's originally written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And our job today in having an English Bible is to take those best manuscripts and put them together, okay? Now, having said that, I'm going to assume that it's original as I work through this. I want you to see four things about verses 13b through 16. First of all, God never lies and cannot lie. Verse 13 says, the Lord is faithful in all his words. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Titus 1, 2. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. And it's not just that he never lies, he can't lie. Hebrews 6, 18. It is impossible for God to lie. By the way, there are some things that God can't do. He can't change. He can't lie. He can't be tempted, says the Bible. He can't stop being God. I'll say it stronger. I can do some things that God can't do. I can lie. I can be wicked. I can be weak. I cannot know things. But none of those things make me more powerful than God because all of those things are weaknesses. All the things that I can do that God can't do, that's only because I'm an inferior being. Lying is not a strength, it's a weakness. Being evil is not a strength, it's a weakness. Being weak is obviously not a strength, it is, wait for it, a weakness, okay? So when this text says that it's impossible for God to lie, we're not limiting his power. Lying would be limiting his power. The fact that he can only do what's right is what makes him God. The fact that, what, that he only is perfect and he has no weaknesses is part of his divine nature. But here's what this means for you. When God has told you something, you can take it to the bank. When he has said, if you trust in Christ, you will be saved, you will be saved. 
If he has told you your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because it's impossible for him to lie. You can, his promises are not like how we as humans promise to others with, uh, with this chance that we could always be lying. It's impossible for God to lie. Second thing I want you to see that God is kind. I won't spend time on this since I spent that long list of God's kindness, but verse 13 says, and kind in all his works. Third thing I want you to see, God preserves and exalts his servants. Verse 14 says, the Lord upholds all who are falling. Psalm 37, 24 Uh, though the fall, he shall not be cast headlong. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. Psalm 146, eight, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. First Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This is part of God's upside down kingdom. You see, if you had lived at the time of the Roman empire, the Roman empire exalts the awesome. The gods of Rome and Greece as well love the winners. They love those who are rich and handsome and talented and powerful. That's who the God's like. The Christian God is different. The Christian God exalts the lowly. The Christian God loves the poor and the broken and the contrite in heart. Jesus has an upside down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. The only wrong way to come before God is arrogant, is boastful. The right way to come before God is broken and contrite. The broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And then the fourth thing, God provides the needs of his creatures. Verses 15 and 16, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Acts 14, 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness. That's talking about God. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Psalm 104, 27 says these, talking about God's creatures, all look to you to give them their food in due season. Matthew 5, 45, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. God is necessary for us to survive. Every living thing looks to him for its food. God feeds the plants, he feeds the animals, he feeds the humans. If God withdraws his hand, everything disappears. We are completely dependent upon God and it's one of the reasons we're given for praising him. Now, a quick note, in verse 16, when it says that God gives us our desires or the things we desire, Okay? That does not mean that God gives us everything that we want because we desire some things that are evil. We desire things that are not good for us. It's the same way with your kids. If your kids desire to play with a loaded handgun, you don't give them that because it's their desire. If they desire to only eat ice cream for breakfast, you don't give that to them every day because that's not good for them. What you do is you give them their righteous desires. You give them not what they want, but what they need. You give them food, you give them shelter, you give them love and care. It's the same way with God. When it says that he gives us the desires, the idea is the things that we need, the righteous desires, the things that are actually good for us that draw us closer to God, not every desire we have because we desire many, many things that are evil. Almost done. Verses 17 through 21. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. We just talked about that. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever, okay? Now, most of that is self-explanatory, but I wanna spend some time on uh, verse 18, which I think needs a little clarification. Verse 18 says this, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Okay, here's what you need to hear. 
if you are a Christian, God loves you and he is near to you, period. As Acts would say, he's not far from each one of us. So if you say, Zach, I don't feel like God is near. I don't care about your false feelings. Okay, you've heard the phrase, facts don't care about your feelings? Well, here's one, Zach's don't care about your feelings, okay? Now, let me clarify as a pastor, I do pastorally care about your feelings. I don't care about your false feelings. I don't care about you using feelings in the realm of truth. Feelings aren't bad, they're just liars. God made us to be emotional creatures, so emotion and feelings and passion, all those are not bad things. They just don't get to play in the realm of truth. God is near to you because his word says he's near to you. He loves you because his word says that he loves you. You see, I've often found that God won't let me feel his presence. He won't let me feel like he's close to me. Do you know why? Because then he's taught me to trust my feelings instead of the scriptures. God loves you regardless of how you feel because his word is true. God is close to you no matter what you're going through because his word says that he's close to you. Your feelings are not bad, they're just liars. So I do care about your feelings. I don't care about your false feelings. I don't care about you. Feelings are great when they stay in the realm of feelings. They don't get to play in the realm of truth. God's word gets to play in the realm of truth. Feelings have to stay in the feelings category. Or as I heard one man say, guard your heart with your head. It's a great way to say it, okay? Guard your heart with your head. God is close to you and loves you because his word says that he loves you. Feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My hope is in the word of God, not else is worth believing, says Martin Luther. Other part of that I want you to see, the second half of 18. To all who call on him in truth. God is not interested in your blind passion, okay? One of the reasons at Parkway we're so big on theology and doctrine and creeds and councils and confessions is because God wants you to worship him in spirit and in truth. There is this idea that God, Paul rebukes those in Romans who quote, have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, okay? I saw an advertisement recently for a mosque. I didn't know mosques were advertising, but I saw one for a mosque and had this woman uh, who's this Muslim woman and her hands were raised and tears were streaming down her face. Is God pleased with that worship? Blind emotionalism? No, you must worship the right God. You must worship the Trinitarian God. You must worship the God whose son died on a cross for your sins. You must worship the Christian God, the God of the Bible. God is not interested in blind emotionalism. Now, I'm not saying you have to have all your theology correct before you come before God. That's not how it works. Part of the regenerating work of the Spirit is that he gives you correct theology. What I am saying, though, is that God does care what you think about him. Not that it affects him in the sense that he has all his joy in himself, but for you. He wants you to think of him rightly. How you think of God will affect everything. So yes, God is near to us and he loves us and we are to worship him not just with the feelings. We're to worship him in truth as well. Well, here's how I wanna end. I wanna end with a little, uh, a little evangelism, okay? Statistically speaking, there are people in here who are not Christians, okay? John Calvin says that uh, of 100 people that say that they're Christians, only about one of those is, Okay? So there are people in here who literally aren't Christians. You might think you're a Christian because you go to church. You might think you're a Christian because you're generally a good person, although there are no good people in the Bible save Jesus. You might think you're a Christian for a hundred other reasons. So I want you to think about this for a second. If I were to ask you, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that you'll be saved? How do you know that you won't go to hell when you die? If the first word out of your mouth is the word I, you're, you're toast. I was baptized, I did this, I walked an aisle, I'm a good person, I go to church, I read my Bible. You don't get to save you. The first word out of your mouth to that question is Jesus. 
that we are wretches, we are sinners, we cannot earn the mercy of God, and Jesus is the one that does the saving. You didn't find Jesus because Jesus wasn't lost. Jesus found you because you were lost. And so what I want you to do, maybe this is the first time, maybe you're visiting with us or whatever it is, maybe this is the first time that you've realized that God is good. Maybe this is the first time that you've realized that God is kind. And if that's the case, what I want you to do when we're praying in just a second is just right there in your chair, cry out to Jesus to save you. If you're not a Christian or if you don't know if you're a Christian, would you ask Jesus to save you? Would you bow the knee before the king? Maybe you've just realized God is king. Would you bow the knee before the kind God, the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light? Would you turn to him? I wanna end by reading some words of an old hymn that we're actually gonna sing. In just a second, we're gonna sing a famous old hymn called Rock of Ages. By the way, shameless plug here, our very own Tim Hollis has a version of this song on iTunes with liturgy's music that's very, very good. And it talks about how God and God alone must do the saving. Here are the words to this hymn. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you try to do good works, you try to obey God's commands with your hands, worthless when it comes to salvation. No matter how high your zeal is, I wanna love God so much and be so passionate, that doesn't save you. No matter how sorrowful you are for your sins where you weep and whine and beg God to forgive, that doesn't save you. God must do the saving. That's the deal. We do the sinning, God does the saving. That's it. That's the only deal we get. So if that's you, as I pray, would you ask Christ to save you? Would you bow the knee before King Jesus? He offers you a full pardon. He's coming back one day and there's no more pardons. But for now, there's a full pardon for those who would trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit and we confess that you are great. We confess that uh, our sin comes because we don't think that you're great. We think we're great. We think other things are great. We confess that you're king. We don't like that. We wanna be king. Despite the fact that nobody has made bad decisions for our lives more than us, we want to be king. We confess that you're kind and that you're merciful and your goodness is over all that you have made. Would you open our eyes to that? Where we no longer just go on a walk, but when we go on a walk and feel a cool breeze, we, we know you love us. When we go on a walk and we see a sunset, we know that you love us. You didn't have to give us anything but hell. And you gave us good creation. You gave us Christ. You gave us salvation. And one day we will be resurrected and everything will be great. You have only been good to us. Would you help us? We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.